Well, just this past week we had a lunar eclipse. Did you all see it? Did you? Was it great? I didn't even know we had one. The next day, I find out, yeah, last night was a lunar eclipse. I'm like, well, hey, thanks for calling and letting me know. I missed it. Things like that are so cool. We, we love watching and seeing things that are going on in outer space. And it did drive me at least, at least a little bit to think about our galaxy. And I started thinking about the Milky Way. The galaxy that we call home. The Milky Way galaxy is a fantastic spiral galaxy containing estimated 100 billion stars. There are some scientists who go up as high as 400 billion, but I think the accepted number out there, though no one's ever gone out and actually counted each one, but they think it's around 100 billion stars, and our sun isn't even the largest one. In fact, it's not even among the largest. It's one of the smaller stars in this galaxy. Furthermore, our sun, the the big yellow ball in the sky that, that heats up our day and and, and brings the seasons and all the stuff that, that, we, that we rotate around ourselves. Our sun is stuck out toward the outer edge in what's called the Orion Spiral Arm. Our sun moves at approximately a half a million miles an hour. That's how fast it's, it's moving around the Milky Way galaxy. And yet, even at that rate, the Milky Way is so big, it would take the sun 200 million years to make one single trip. That's incredible. That is vast. It's huge. It's, it's overwhelming to think about that. And then to realize Earth, our big planet, is just a tiny little puny ball of dirt in that tiny little area off to the side of the Milky Way galaxy. We're not even in the middle of our own galaxy. And our galaxy is one of several billion, 500 billion estimated galaxies in the universe. To make you feel small, <laughs> insignificant, teeny tiny. And we're specks on the dot that's a speck in the galaxy that's a speck in the universe that in reality even our universe is a speck in eternity. No wonder David wrote in Psalm 8 verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him? And we sing, I am your beloved, I am your creation, and, and, and you, you call me, you chose me, you love me as your own. And I wondered, even as we were singing that song, if there are some of you who doubt that, or have a hard time accepting that. You love me as I am? Oh, Lord, you can't possibly love me as I am because I don't even love myself as I am. I know who I am and you know who I am and who I am is not who you want me to be. And we struggle with that very thought and with our, with our place in this whole massive universe. And I think we haven't even begun to grapple with how great is our God. Suddenly I agree wholeheartedly with David. Who in the world am I? that you would take thought of me. Who am I? That as I go through my mundane little life, who am I that you care what's going on in my life? And yet, His Word tells us He does. That He is intimately acquainted with our lives and wants us to be intimately acquainted with Him. That He desires the very thing we just prayed for, relationship with each one of us. How? I don't know. How can He keep up with it? He's God. But it's an amazing thing. There's something that caught my attention, by the way, as I was looking at the Milky Way galaxy. This tiny, podunk, insignificant little Earth that we live in has been placed 
rotating around our little tiny flashlight of a sun has been placed there in the outer reaches of our galaxy in a place called the Galactic Habitable Zone. It's the only place in this entire galaxy where we could survive. God's got a plan. God has an agenda. He's worked out all the angles of His magnificent eternal plan. He knows what He's doing. And He's establishing, and this is just awesome, He's establishing an eternal kingdom. And you and I have a role to play. In all of this vastness, we have a role to play. Jeremiah 29.11, it's a pretty famous verse. A lot of, a lot of people in Christianity like to quote this verse and, and be comforted by it. Jeremiah prophesied, he said in Jeremiah 29.11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And then you will come to me and you will pray to me and I'll listen to you. And you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. But that often quoted verse was not written to Christians. Oh, I think we can apply it. But it was written originally to the Jewish people. A real people with real problems. Jeremiah chapter 29 came in the form of a letter written by the hand of Jeremiah, spoke by God, that was delivered to the people of Israel when they were in captivity in Babylon. They had been ripped out of their homes. And I want you to to personalize this. I don't know if you've had some struggle with with a mortgage. You know, what's going on in our culture right now is massive uh, foreclosures and people struggling with making those mortgages and the subprime mortgage thing and everything's falling apart there. And people not knowing how am I going to pay my mortgage. Well, the Jewish people didn't have to worry about paying their mortgage because Nebuchadnezzar foreclosed. He came in and he decimated Jerusalem, wiped out Israel, destroyed their temple, and dragged them off into captivity. Thousands upon thousands were killed, murdered, as he did this. And thousands upon thousands were dragged away from the only life they knew. Can you even imagine that for a moment? Having a swarm of a different army swarm into Washington State and grab and pick us all up and take us off to their own country with a language we don't know, with a people we don't know, in a place we don't understand, Nothing of the creature comforts that we're used to. And in the middle of that, God says, Hey, i got a plan for you. Right. You've got to be kidding. Plans for a future and a hope. What? Come on, Lord. He goes further and he says in verse 14 of Jeremiah 29, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, in Babylon. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you in indicating, by the way, that they wouldn't just be driven to Babylon, that they were going to be driven all over the earth as we know history has borne out. He says, I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you in exile. And prophecy students are very excited in this generation to have seen that happen. To see Israel restored back to the place from all the places all over the earth that they have been driven. But I want you to hear this. Their sin, their failure, their fallout landed Israel in the horror of captivity, but God still had them right where He wanted them. And the same is true for you and for me. He's got us right where He wants us. My life's a mess. He's got you right where He wants you. Yeah, but I don't understand. What... He's got you right where He wants you. Oh, so you're saying that God caused all this calamity? No, I'm saying He has you right where He wants you. And He has a promise for you and a role for your life. 
David understood this in a wonderful way. David was promised a huge role in the eternal kingdom. The Lord said to him in 2 Samuel 7.16 Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. He's been given an eternal promise. How's that working out for David so far in our study? Not too good. If you look at him right now, you get to chapter 18, the beginning of it, and he is on the run again, fleeing from his own son Absalom. Absalom who is now coming into Jerusalem. David's fleeing out. And on the way out... Zadok, the priest, and a couple of the other priests, they come along with the Ark of the Covenant. They're ready to go with David and take the Ark with them. And David stops them and he says, no, no, no. Take the Ark back. Place it there in the tabernacle. And he says these words, 2 Samuel 15, 25, If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. There's a prayer of faith. Here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Not, God, how could you allow this to happen? Lord, my family's a mess. My son's a mess. I know I blew it, but this is just ridiculous. not fair. No, he says, let him do to me as seems good to him. David understood that in spite of outward appearances, even in the worst of circumstances, God has an agenda. And we may fall apart and we may fail, but God never does. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. David knew this. Sadly, Absalom did not. Absalom is a lot like David. The similarities between the two, especially as young men, strong and and, and beautiful and and well-liked, and yet in their faith, they are like opposites. Absalom trusted not in the Lord but in his own ambition let's see where it got him chapter 18 verse 1 David numbered the people who were with him and he set them over commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds David sent the people out one third under the command of Joab one third under the command of Abishai the son of Zeruiah Joab's brother one third under the command of Itai the Gittite and the king said to the people I myself will surely go out with you also But the people said, no, you should not go out. For if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you be ready to help us from the city. And the king said to them, well, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and thousands. The king charged Joab and Abishai and Atai, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. In other words, bring him back alive. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. Then the people went out into the field against Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David. And the slaughter there that day was great. 20,000 men. Again, Israel is in the place of civil war. Those who side with David against Israel, who is siding with Absalom, who right now is temporarily king. He set himself up as king there in, in Jerusalem. It says the battle, verse 8, was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. What does that mean? It means it was a rough, rocky, difficult terrain. 
And there were oak trees and, and massive trees everywhere and people were getting impaled on trees and falling into pits and dying off of rocks and, and the land was so harsh that more people died accidentally in this battle than were taken by the sword. Well, the people of Israel, verse 7, or verse 9, sorry. Now Absalom, Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. This was not like a, an appointment. He's coming around one way, and here come a bunch of servants of David the other way, and they run into each other, and so he turns, and he begins to flee, for Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him kept going. Now, this would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. When a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who had told him, Now behold, you saw him. Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? Then I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. <laughs> I guess that was valuable, you know, in those days. I don't know if he had some of those low-rise jeans that he kept having to hike up, maybe, I don't know. But the man said to Joab, Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in your own hearing, the king charged you and Abishai and Atei, saying, Protect for me the young man Absalom. Otherwise, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. In other words, if I had done this, I would have been busted for it, and you would have just stood there and said nothing. Well, then Joab said, I will not waste time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. And then Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel. For for Joab restrained the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a deep pit in the forest and erected over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, each to his own tent. The life and death of Absalom is a bitter tragedy. He's a man hung up by his own ambitions who dies hung up in an oak tree. He's got a lot of problems and yet some things to note about Absalom. Number one, he was beautiful. He was beautiful. Back in 2 Samuel 14, verse 25, we read the following. It says, In Israel, in all Israel, was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. It's a good-looking dude. Verse 26 says, When he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. The Bible seems to know that's roughly four pounds. That is a lot of hair on this guy's head. He's got this long, bushy hair. He's a beautiful guy. Like his father before him, Absalom was a very good-looking man, but his beauty ended, ended up hanging him out to dry. He thought more highly of himself than he ought. And by the way, isn't it ironic that beauty itself can be such a hang-up for us? The amount of time that we put into our faces and our hair and our clothing in the mornings is just unbelievable. Now think back in Jesus' day when they'd sleep out under the stars, wake up in the morning, splash the water in his face and go his way. You know, and I mean they're... You know, doing the whole thing. Trying to make myself presentable. And that's just me, I'm a guy. I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do for me. Some of you ladies... 
I spent an awful lot of time in front of that mirror. You look great, by the way. Every one of you. Really good this morning. But beauty can be such a hang-up. Absalom was beautiful, but Absalom was also beloved. In chapter 15, verse 6, it tells us, In this manner Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. They loved him. Absalom, Absalom, he's our man. We'll follow him. What a great guy. Absalom also was deeply loved by David as well. You don't necessarily realize that as his life is going on because there's such conflict between these two. Often that's the case, by the way. The parent and the child that have the most conflict in the family oftentimes are the most alike. I know that, that's been the case in my home with myself and Hannah. And we don't have great conflict now, but boy, growing up, oh man, she drove me nuts. Until one day when Cheryl says she's just like you, and I went, oh. That's the problem. (laughs) Well, Absalom was deeply loved by David. We see it after he dies. In the outcry, in in a mourning, the, the, the pathetic, pitiful cry of David's heart when he finds out that his son is dead. And you realize, man, he loved his boy. He loved him deeply. Absalom was beautiful. Absalom was beloved. Absalom was also bitter. 2 Samuel 13 and 14 detail this growing bitterness in Absalom's life. We've been studying through that and looking at it. Absalom had a sister, Tamar, who was raped by his brother. And so Absalom took revenge on his brother. And because of this, Absalom becomes the rejected son, the one in the family who is outcast among all the sons of David. And this seeds inside of his heart. And he's a very bitter and vengeful man. But perhaps the greatest reason for all of Absalom's hang-ups was this. Absalom was brash. Absalom was brash, boastful, self-focused. If we look back in chapter 18, verse 18, it tells us the following. It says, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to preserve my name. So he named the pillar after his own name. It is called Absalom's Monument to this day Absalom actually had three children which had either died prematurely or possibly he rejected them like he himself had been rejected whatever the case he at the point of erecting this monument said there's no one that I'm going to leave any inheritance to so I'm going to leave a name for myself I'm going to leave my mark and so he builds this monument in the King's Valley it's called Yad Absalom Hand of Absalom or Place of Absalom And as the passage suggests, and I love when the Bible says it's still there to this day. I love when the Bible says that, and and it actually is still there to our day. Yad Absalom is still there to our day. By the way, if you go to Israel, and the sign-up form is right over there on that wall. You can see it. You can see it for yourself, this old monument. Now, the monument that's there in the King's Valley, Yad Absalom, dates back to Jesus' day. It's a 2,000-year-old monument, roughly. Now, Absalom set his up a thousand years before that, but they're pretty sure that that monument Absalom set up, that the new one, that's 2,000 years old, is in the exact same place, set up or built above the one Absalom originally made for himself. They're in the King's Valley. It's the Kadron Valley in Jerusalem. The city of David was right there in Jerusalem, and, and the Kadron Valley came down. It was called the King's Valley. And it runs north to south between the Temple Mount to the west and the Mount of Olives to the east. 
What's interesting about Yad Avshalom, this, this monument, is that people, parents specifically, would bring their children from all over Israel down through the centuries to visit Yad Avshalom. And when they got there, they would pick up rocks and ceremoniously throw the rocks at the, at the monument there. Absalom set this thing up to bring glory and honor to himself and what he gets is people chucking rocks at it. Why? Because parents take their kids and say, see, this is what happens to children who disobey their parents. (laughs) You get stoned. It's interesting that that's what happened to Absalom. After he was killed there in the oak tree and taken down and thrown into the pit, what they do? They dump rocks all over on top of him. Which was the penalty in those days for a child who was rebellious against a parent. But what would cause a man to build a monument to himself? I'll tell you what would. Limited vision. Anytime someone says, I need to leave my mark. I've got to make my legacy. I've got to, when I go out of this world, there's got to be something left behind that says, me, my name, that focuses on the fact that I was here. When we do that, it's out of limited vision. Because when all we can see is this life, then all we have to leave is something for this life. 1 Corinthians 3.12, Paul says, If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Paul uses some, some building materials here. He uses some that don't last real well, wood, hay, and straw, as a picture of this life only. People who build with wood, hay, and straw. Man, I'm going to leave a name for myself here on planet Earth. I'm making my mark. It's wood, hay, and straw. And that's limited vision. Gold, silver, precious stones. Why is gold so valuable? Because it's so precious. Because it's long-lasting. And rather than having a limited vision, God wants you, wants me to build with lasting value. Something that has eternal worth to it. You want to build something measured in eternity? Here's how you do it. You build on the foundation of Jesus Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones. What what is gold, silver, and precious stones? Souls. People. There's where you build. On the foundation. Jesus has laid it. The door is wide open. The way into heaven is paved by the blood shed by Jesus on the cross. But for you, for me, and the kingdom, we are now called to lives. Not just making lives better here, making lives better for eternity. Building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Paul is saying, Church of Thessalonica, I was sent there. I got to, to teach you and be with you for a real short amount of time. But the fact that there's a church there, Paul says, that's my crown. Your, your being in eternity. That's what I'm looking for. And that's what God wants us to build on. But brash, ambitious Absalom could only see the future kingdom in terms of himself. And in terms of his lifetime, he was building kingdom with a little K. Absalom's kingdom. A couple things to jot down in contrast of David and Absalom. Absalom Absalom took the kingdom by force. This was his attitude. This was his heart. This is the way he did it. He took the kingdom by force. Again, 2 Samuel 15, 6 said he stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. He was just that kind of charismatic leader, able to stir up the imagination and the excitement of the people, which we see today. 
I could not believe this. I thought it was so funny in the news. Barack Obama is out speaking and he sneezes and gets wild applause. What is going on with this guy? I mean, he has a charismatic uh, ability to excite people and, and I'm not getting all in, don't worry, I'm not doing the political thing but, but yeah, last week they reported in the news Barack Obama sneezes and the crowd goes wild and I thought, you've got to be kidding when I sneeze, people just back up <laughs> Barack sneezes and people go, yeah, we go Barack, woohoo a sneeze that changed the world it's incredible to me but Absalom was that kind of leader he was forceful, he was ambitious, he was driven he was into monument building he was all about leaving his own mark that's what he wanted to do I've got to leave my mark I've got to be the one making a difference people need to see what I've done what about you? what is your agenda? this was the question that landed in my lap on Friday morning that redirected the entire study for me. What's your agenda? It's as if the Lord was saying that to me. Rick, what is your agenda? Ask them, what is their agenda? What's your agenda for life? What are you about? What's the most important thing in the world to you? Because gang, our agenda tends to be what drives us. And even good agendas can be a hindrance to the kingdom with a capital K. Especially if my agenda is so important to me that I usurp the anointed king for the sake of my own personal monuments. For the sake of what I'm doing. Even if I say, I'm doing it for the kingdom, man. I'm doing my thing for the Lord. This is my deal. And no one else is paying attention. This is my deal. And my deal's going to win. If they won't let my deal happen at this church, I'm going to find another church to make my deal happen. And the Lord's saying, that's your agenda and you're building a kingdom with a little K. Would you like to be involved in the kingdom with a capital K? God has an agenda for you, for me, should we choose to accept it. He calls us to His agenda as the central focus of our lives, which means sometimes taking our agenda and laying it aside. Okay, maybe what I thought was so important isn't so important after all. Absalom took the kingdom by force. David received the kingdom by faith. And there's such a dramatic contrast between these two. Hebrews 11.1 tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Absalom used force to take a kingdom, but it takes faith to receive a kingdom. And time and time again we see this in David's life. He faithfully waits to receive the kingdom God promised. He was what, 17, 18 years old? Back in 1 Samuel 16 when Samuel comes and anointed this shepherd boy. And from there many years would go by. He would go on into his 20s knowing that he had been anointed by the prophet to be king in Israel. He would wander through his 20s chased by Saul. He had two opportunities, at least that we know about, possibly more, but at least two opportunities to kill Saul and get him out of the way. 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26. Finally, in his 30s, he is crowned, anointed king of Judah in Hebron, but it will be another seven years, age 37, before finally all of Israel accepts him as their king. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 4-5 through 5 tells us. David received a kingdom by faith. From the point that Samuel anointed him, he said, Wow, God's got something for me, and I can wait for it. 
And it may not be going my way as he's fleeing from Saul, but I can wait for it. And it may not be going my way as he's anointed by Judah, but the rest of Israel says, no, we won't have you. So he waits for it. Until finally he is anointed. And even now, in his late 50s, as he's being driven out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, losing this kingdom that had been promised to him, he says, if I find favor in the sight of the Lord, he'll bring me back again. And he will show me both it and his habitation. Faith, gang, listen, faith is not spiritual passivity, but it is spiritual patience. There's a big difference. It's not sitting back doing nothing, just going, well, Lord didn't tell me to do anything today, so I'm just staying home. But it is saying, Lord, what do you have for me? I know you've got something, but I'm not going to force your hand. David knew God was true to his word. That's faith. It's not blindness. It's not blind faith. I don't know what God's going to do. It's knowing God's going to do something and waiting for it. By force or by faith, how do you choose to live? By force or by faith, what's your part in the kingdom? Because, gang, the kingdom is not always what we think it is. Keep your finger there and flip over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. I'm looking at the kingdom this week and thinking about the kingdom. And Matthew, by the way, is the gospel, the kingdom gospel. I mean, it's the one where Matthew, as as the writer, really points to the lordship of of Jesus. The fact that Jesus is king. Now this chapter, Matthew 11, might not be the one that you would think would be, let's go to this one to find out about the kingdom. But there are several things in it that really stirred my heart. Listen to this. Verse 1, it says, Jesus had finished giving instruction to his twelve disciples. And he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John, that is John the Baptist, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go report to John what you see and hear, that the blind receive sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel, that is the good news, preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. John the Baptist was in a tough place. Like Israel in Babylon, like David on the run, John the Baptist is in prison and his faith is faltering a bit. Do you remember what John's primary message was as he baptized people? Repent for the... The kingdom is at hand. John was a herald. He was an emissary of the coming kingdom. His whole life was about the kingdom. The kingdom's coming. The king is on his way. We've got to get ready, Israel. We've got to be prepared. And now he's sitting in prison and he's going, Did I miss him? I thought it was Jesus, but... Man, it, and he sent some of his guys, Look, go, go find Jesus and ask him, Is he the one? Is he the king? I love Jesus' response to it. Jesus says, man, the kingdom agenda is right on schedule, John. You know Isaiah chapter 61. You know the passage there about the anointed one. He said, ask your disciples, do they see that in me? That's Jesus' response. Verse 7, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you see? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. And I would add here, by the world standards. 
But Jesus says, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In other words, in the kingdom, the insignificant are significant. Though the galaxy may be one of 500 billion, and though our planet may be a tiny speck in the middle of that, Jesus says, in my kingdom, the insignificant ones may become significant. And then he says this in verse 12, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men, watch this, take it by force. It's exactly what Absalom did. Taking the kingdom by force. I want the kingdom. And I want the kingdom to look my way. And I don't want to be the big cheese. And I don't want to be in charge. It's my kingdom. And Jesus comes along. And he completely redefines kingdom for us. He turns his attention to those who would usurp the kingdom for their own agenda. And by the way, those who would usurp the kingdom, as Jesus is speaking, he's not talking about Rome here. He's talking about the religious leaders. He's talking about the zealots who wanted a kingdom. They just didn't want the one Jesus was bringing. They wanted to be significant. They wanted to be in charge. And so Jesus has this to say about that generation, and I believe it applies to ours. He says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. People say, what exactly does that mean if you're willing to accept it? It means if the people had accepted John as the herald and accepted Jesus as Messiah, then John the Baptist would have been the prophesied Elijah. But as it was, the people rejected John and rejected Jesus. Therefore, Elijah is going to come the second time around. Verse 15, Jesus says, He who has ears, let him hear. But, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, He has a demon. And the Son of Man, Jesus says about himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, he's a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus, what are you saying in all this? What's the point? No one's paying attention. You like kids in the marketplace who are more interested in their own song, goofing around, singing back and forth, not really paying attention to anything going on. Jesus is saying you are trying to define the kingdom by human standards and you're missing it. You're trying to make the kingdom, force it into a certain mold of your own expectation and you're missing it. And there are times where my heart is heavy because I think we're missing it today. I think the church is trying to mold the kingdom into a certain view, a certain power, a certain standard in the world and we're missing it. Jesus goes on in verse 20 and he began to denounce the cities. Listen, the cities in which most of his miracles were done. He's denouncing not Nazareth who wouldn't believe in him so he didn't do or couldn't do many miracles there. He's denouncing now cities who saw the miraculous, the supernatural, the powerful 
Because they did not repent. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. By the way, you can also see the remains of Capernaum. Not much left there, but there are archaeological remains that you can visit in Israel. Nevertheless, I say to you, verse 24, that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than it is for you. These three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, you can call them the Galilee Triangle. They are the three primary cities of Jesus' miraculous ministry. Capernaum was right on the Sea of Galilee, the other two cities further back, but he would travel between these three. This was the the main focus area of his ministry, a tiny little area. It wasn't as big, it wasn't all Israel up and down. It was mostly right there in that little triangle there in the Galilee, between those three cities. They saw the miracles, they saw the fantastic, the supernatural, but they would not repent. Because miracles never make people repent. It's not what does it. Power and supernatural things. It's exciting. It's fun to watch. It's great to see. But it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, the Bible tells us. Are we missing the kingdom? Verse 25, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants yes father for this way was well pleasing in your sight all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father tragically nor does anyone know the father except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him now listen to how Jesus sums up this whole thing as he says you're missing the kingdom but listen listen come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest I take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light and now we're getting to it. Did you hear it? Jesus is defining both the kingdom and the agenda of God something a child can understand. But what is that kingdom? Can we just get a description of it? Luke chapter 17 verse 20 tells us that another time having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming Jesus answered and said to them now listen the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed nor will they say look here it is or there it is for behold the kingdom of God is in your midst Luke 17 21 and by the way that is worth highlighting circling underlining in your Bible the kingdom of God is in your midst and by the way that translation is spot on absolutely correct if you read from an NIV translation of the Bible I was just talking about this with some friends earlier this week if you read out of the NIV it mostly is pretty accurate but there are times when it is horribly wrong when it really completely misses the whole emphasis. The NIV takes this verse, Luke 17, 21, and says, Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. 
You've probably heard it. You may have even heard that preached. The kingdom is within you. It makes it sound like this new age mysticism. Ooh, the kingdom's in me. I'm walking in the kingdom. I got the kingdom, man. I'm a kingdom dude. It's right here. Listen, a couple problems with that. Number one, the translation's wrong. It's not the kingdom is within you, it's the kingdom is in your midst. And the other problem with it is Jesus is talking to Pharisees who did not believe in him. And would he say to them, the kingdom is within you? Would he go out to an unbeliever on the street and say, you who have rejected me and you're rejecting everything that I've brought, hey, but the kingdom's in you, dude. It's right there. The context and the language are not mystical, gang. In the Greek, it's entos kumon. He's saying, open your eyes, Pharisee. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What? I'm right here, Jesus is saying. The kingdom is right here. You don't have a kingdom without a king. And the king is standing before your very eyes. Here's the kingdom. You want to know the kingdom of God? Look at me, Jesus would say. You want to understand the kingdom of God? Come to me. If you're weary and heavy laden, man, you're trying to take the kingdom by force. You're like Paul. You're kicking it at the goats. Remember that how Paul said when he had his vision of Jesus? Jesus says, it's, it's hard for you. Kicking at the goats. The goats are cattle prongs. And Jesus compares Paul to that. He says, man, you're fighting it. You're trying to take this kingdom by force. That's not how the kingdom comes. That's how, not how my will be done. It's not through force. It's through faith. Come to me. Look to me. Trust in me, Jesus says. The kingdom is me. It's not about building monuments like Absalom did. It's not about getting hung up in our plans and our agendas. It's not about forcing my way on the Lord. It's about accepting and receiving Him as King. And David got it. The eternal kingdom would have an eternal king. Now, as Absalom's story ends, we're met with a tragic scene. Absalom dies hung up in a tree. He's got three spears jammed into his heart. He's surrounded by a vicious mob. I mean, a horrible thing. You'd think the three spears would have done him in. That word spear, Shabbat, in the Hebrew, is actually could mean darts or arrows. The indication there is Joab grabbed whatever he could and just jammed him into his heart. But he's hanging there. He's got these in his heart and he's still, he's still alive. And suddenly these ten guys of Joab, they just viciously, viciously start hacking him and go at him and take him right into death. It's a brutal, horrible murder. And then they take his body out and they toss it into a pit and they, they bury him with these rocks. Deuteronomy 21-23, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night long on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. So that's what they did. They pulled him out of the tree and they buried him right away. This is the law that says if you hang, leave a guy hanging in a tree, he's cursed. So they took Absalom's body down. And they threw him in a pit. An absolute tragic waste of this beautiful, brilliant, beloved, but brash young man. And then we hear David's lament. Down in verse 33 of 2 Samuel 18, it says, The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, 
You would think after being driven out of Jerusalem that David would say, well, he had it coming. (laughs) He deserved it. He earned it. No. And anyone who's been a parent, you know how you feel about your kids. It doesn't matter how much they have messed it up. You still have a heart for them. David is absolutely broken hearted. You know, you can contrast this with the consolation and comfort David had when Bathsheba's child died. You know, the adulterous affair with Bathsheba, she got pregnant and gave birth to a child and that child got very sick and, and David, he prayed and he fasted and he, he wouldn't eat until the child died. And then he got up, showered, had something to eat, worshipped the Lord, things were good and his servants went, what's up with that? He said, well, while the child was alive, there was still some hope and now the child has died, he can't come back to me but I will go to where he is. In other words, I'll, I'll see him again. I'm going to see him again. So David took comfort in that. The Bible tells us when Amnon was murdered by Absalom, David's firstborn son Amnon, even though he had raped his sister Tamar, something happened in the last couple of years after that happened to where David, after Amnon died, was consoled in his death. I may see Amnon again. He weeps and weeps and weeps and is inconsolable about Absalom, I think because he knows this rebellious son will never be seen again. Because he will never have relationship with him in eternity in the future because Absalom died in rebellion cursed in a tree and David wailed Jesus also died hung up in a tree he too was surrounded by a band of vicious men he too was was speared in the side as Absalom was Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree Paul reaches back to the tree curse and brings it forward and says Jesus on the cross Jesus hung on a tree Jesus took the curse for us in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith not through force Not through making it what we want it to be, but accepting and receiving it as it is. As it is given by the Lord. And you may have caught it, but Jesus also went into a pit, just like Absalom. Absalom was thrown into the pit. Jesus went into the pit. This amazing rescue effort of captive souls that you can read about in Ephesians chapter 4. And you might say, well, Rick, why do you keep pointing out similarities between Jesus' death and the death of sinful people? Last week it was Ahithophel. This week it's Absalom. I mean, I understand making comparisons between you know, Jesus and good righteous people in their death, but, but why people like Absalom and Ahithophel? Because they're the exact type of people Jesus died for. Sinners. Messed up. Confused. Hurting. Lost. Agenda-driven people. And Jesus says, listen, I know the plans I have for you. It's a kingdom. I got a kingdom coming. I don't know how to do this, but I wish there was a way to shake us all out of church. Just long enough that we can hear the reality of what Jesus is saying when he says, I have a kingdom for you. I wish there was a way the Lord could jar us out of our lives to where we could look at all, the, all our efforts and all our energy that we're putting into so many things we could go, how much of this is kingdom stuff? How much of this really matters that I'm doing? There's a kingdom coming. A real, authentic, actual kingdom. And God says, that's what I'm bringing. You want to be part of that? Because I want you to be. i got a plan for you to be. I'm excited for you to be in this. 
But when I live by my agendas, my kingdom dies with me. When I live by God's agenda, there is a resurrection and a kingdom to come. Hebrews 12, 28 says, We receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 says, He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The kingdom is coming. Amen. 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 What are your hang-ups? And what's your agenda? And how about trading it all in for God's agenda and His kingdom? Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.18, and this is the very end of his life, one of the last things Paul would write, he said, The Lord will bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray about this. Lord, there's an awful lot of fantasy in the world. A lot of fantasy about faraway kingdoms and kings and queens of old. A lot of movies out there that we see, television shows that make this whole idea of kingdom seem like this fable, this storybook thing, this, this fantasy thing from a world gone by. But you tell us your kingdom is coming. You tell us you're preparing us now to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And Father, I just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak into our hearts the reality of what's coming. The truth of what's coming, that we could grab hold of it. And no matter what's going on in our lives, say, man, that's the agenda I want to be a part of. Lord Jesus, that's what we want our lives to be about. Among us here this morning, Lord, there are so many different jobs and and professions, different things that we're all involved in. And to each one of us, they're all important. But it's my prayer, Father, that you will show us how, in the place that you have us, how we can live for your kingdom and your agenda. How we can be missionaries, as it were, wherever we are, living lives that are kingdom-focused with a capital K. And Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that you have chosen to make us a kingdom. Prepare us and get us ready, Lord, for we know it's coming soon. In Jesus' name, amen.